0: Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: Yes, let's keep the great presidents poll, but uh, let's let's have a, some sort of measure of consequential presidents rather than great presidents. Because great presidents, to be a great president, you've got to be a hero, right? There's just going to be a handful of people who ever end up in that category. But if you had a poll of consequential presidents, Wilson would always be there.
2: Patricia O'Toole is the author of acclaimed biographies of Theodore Roosevelt, When Trumpets Call, and Henry Adams, The Five of Hearts. She is the author of The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson, and The World He Made. And she joins me on the program. Patricia, thanks for coming on today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you will, bear with me while I I relay a, a thought that I had, and I'm picturing a Woodrow Wilson's statue, say, in Princeton, and a group of protesters, perhaps, as students, taking a hammer to it because perhaps they don't like his racial views, and then passing the hammer on to a conservative who doesn't like him for, say, enlarging the income tax or enlarging the size of government, and then passing on the hammer to a libertarian who doesn't like what he might have done with restrictive policies around World War, World War I, One. And then passing the hammer to an uh, anti-globalist who doesn't like his his attitudes about America's place uh, in the world. The list could go on and on. It seems like there's some strange bedfellows in people who perhaps these days don't like Woodrow Wilson very much.
1: That's a wonderful image of all these people from different political persuasions hacking down a statue Having many reasons to do that. Um, one of the things I discovered early on about Woodrow Wilson that intrigued me was I was reading uh, a number of books about presidential greatness, and I started with the index. Uh, and there was one by a wonderful historian named Thomas Bailey. And in the index, Wilson occupies more space than any other president, more than FDR, more than Lincoln, more than Washington. And I thought, that, that really caught my attention. I mm-hmm. thought, what is that all about? And uh, as as I read into uh, what people at the time and later thought about Wilson, he's both a really controversial president and a really consequential president. So his admirers think, okay, there, there are all these criticisms you could make of him, and they're not trying to say that the criticisms are unjustified. But in the end, he did something uh it, it, he did things both in domestic policy and foreign policy that were really, really important. And you don't have to admire him, but you have to acknowledge that they were consequential and permanent um, in, in changing the way the world thinks about things. So on the domestic side, there's the uh, uh, new freedom package of economic reform legislation that he passed very quickly. So he establishes the Federal Reserve he gets a new antitrust law that makes it easier to m- nip monopoly in the bud, gets a federal trade commission, and the modern income tax, which replaced an old, uh, the old protectionist tax, which had tariffs on so many goods coming into the country and It was actually, you know, if you wanted to make America great again, we could go back to that income tax because the top bracket was 7%, and (laughs) the only people who had to pay 7% were those who earned over $500,000 a year in 1916. So half the country paid no income tax, and then it was scaled up very gradually.
2: I mean, I suppose then it was more, it was just a way of financing a a lower tariff. If we're going to reduce tariffs, there had to still be a way to to fund the government
1: that was it and and it the democrats the republicans argued about this but the democrats analysis of the tariff was that it helped make um, it helped protect uh american industry so those who owned shares in american companies got rich um, and those who were customers which would be just about everybody in the country mm-hmm. actually paid more for their products than than they would have without this tariff so it was a way of redistributing the the tax burden. Tax had to be paid in one way or another. It was a question of whether you're going to have a tariff or um, have an income tax.
2: Your thesis is that Woodrow Wilson, perhaps more than any president, injected moral force into his decision-making and his style of his presidency. I wish you would talk a bit about the book's thesis.
1: Yes, I wanted what I thought was the defining trait of Woodrow Wilson as the center of the book. Um, and one reason I wanted that is if you don't have that, then he's involved in so many different things, some of his own making and some just by virtue of when he was president, you know, during being commander in chief in world war one, and then uh being one of the great powers who negotiated the peace afterwards. So I just kept thinking for a long time about what is it that's at the heart of Woodrow Wilson that I can hang kind of just about everything on. And um, his moral concern was very deep. He was a, an extremely principled man. And previous biographers have, when they've written about this, I wasn't the first person to notice that he was a deeply principled man. and But previous biographers had kind of attributed this to the fact that he was the son of a Presbyterian preacher, and there were many Presbyterian preachers in, in the family tree. So, you know, they put it on his growing up in that kind of background and taking Judeo-Christian values with him into politics. And I don't think that's wrong, but he, he was not, um, a leader who governed from his religion. He, he never claimed to know the will of God. He wasn't uh, a zealot. He did not try to impose his religion in his politics. And when God turns up in his speeches, it's, it was the way it kind of turns up later with, you know, God bless America kind of thing, or God willing, we will prevail, or that. It's very generic. So um, my idea was that uh, he came to the White House from having studied, basically starting when he was a teenager, studying history and politics and government and being really serious about it. And he had a faith in democracy that I would say uh compared uh you know equal to his faith in God um, so he believes that democracy is the most moral form of government because it rests on the consent of the governed. He believes that uh because the United States at that point is the world's most successful democracy um, uh, that the United States is morally superior, and he believes that uh when when the war comes along he believes that we have a mission to take this uh wonderful democracy to the rest of the world not impose it on them but where other people wanted to form democratic governments do what we could to uh help them thrive uh probably he would he wouldn't uh, thought of it as nation building mm-hmm. but um being a support for uh... democratic government helping them in in various ways probably not with foreign aid um, that as i i don't recall that that ever came up but just uh... being there to support them and um a lot of nine new democracies were created at the end of world war one mostly on the ruins of the habsburg empire and um they were fragile states So it was his idea that the United States would be better off and the world would be better off if we helped them succeed. And
2: these were, I think... uh Ideals that were saluted uh, with with presidents of the past and the problems that America had with civil service reform and corruption and government and bossism and and all kinds of things like that. There was a uh, Woodrow Wilson came uh, coming out of New Jersey with what he had accomplished and taking on the bosses there. You know, really seemed like a a fine choice. These were assets. A moral president. Now, we, maybe we recoil a bit at, at at the introduction of morality in our presidents and politicians. It's almost like, well, who are you to tell me? You know, I guess moral force can be dangerous too. I mean, a, a king or a strongman might might assert moral force.
1: Yes, you can always find a moral justification for doing uh, what you're doing. You know the the. Uh, uh, slaveholders, when slavery came under attack, uh, found all kinds of passages in the Bible that they claimed supported slavery. So, so that is that is a danger. Uh, with Wilson, he really was, um, uh, I, I think, admirable in terms of his moral convictions. And he, he he in in the first six years of his presidency, and he when he went to Congress, he's the first president since John Adams to d- address the Congress in person. He did it maybe two dozen times. And the speeches all have the same kind of pattern. He comes and he says, we need to do X because it's the right thing to do. And it will have these material benefits to all the people of the United States. So that's his thing, you know, that we want to do the right thing. And it's going to turn out to be the practical thing as well. So that you can kind of get on board with. I mean, if the person makes a good case, you think, yes, we should do that. Um, but what happened to him in uh, 1918, uh, at that point he's been president for six years, and it comes midterm election time, and he's had majorities in both the House and the Senate for six years. So he's gotten a lot of things done. Um, but uh, coming up on those midterm elections, he... Uh, against all advice, sent out a uh, bulletin to the American people saying, you really need to vote Democratic this time because at the end of the war, I'm going to have to go abroad to negotiate the peace, and it's going to be really complicated, and I will do better if I if I can go there, and the world knows that I have the force of the American people behind me. Well, the Republicans were insulted by this because they had been much better uh, across the board in supporting all his war measures than the democrats had been across the board um so uh they they felt that as a real slap in the face and the control of congress changes in that election both the house and both the senate are now in republican hands and wilson doesn't change i mean that would be a moment to course correct right mm-hmm. <laughs> but he, he doesn't change he's uh, he gets uh uh, that the kind of moral conviction sort of uh, leads into moral superiority and moral vanity. And so then in the debates that followed about uh, the League of Nations, which was part of the uh, Treaty of Versailles, uh, the Covenant of the League of Nations was part of the treaty, He, um, when the Republicans disagreed with him, he, he said that their idea was not as morally superior as his. And that's just what you were talking about, you know, it's it's really irritating to to hear from someone that just because you have a different opinion, your notion is morally inferior.
2: We've looked at a lot of historic midterms on this program. There's no more dangerous words for a president to utter than "give me a Congress." He did that. He made that mistake. As several others from Clinton and Obama to FDR and 38. It just seems like uh, presidents don't don't get on the high horse and tell Americans just because you were elected that you can tell them how to vote in other elections. Yes. Was there a middle ground? You know, you hear that there were people that were the irreconcilables, that maybe were never going to agree to a league. I mean, did he have a play there if he had acted better? Do you think he could have got a a lead?
1: Yes. Um, The Republicans, um, there were different factions of the Republicans, some who uh, favored the league pretty much as it was. And then some real hardcore people who said we're not going to vote for this under any circumstances and the reason was they thought it would involve the United States and all kinds of things abroad that were not tied uh, to U.S. interests um, and then there were some moderates and, and so there was a spectrum of Republican opinion and they kind of uh, uh, coalesced everything into 14 reservations that they wanted attached to the treaty, just places where the United States was going to differ from what the rest of the world who was signing this treaty uh, did. And reservations come up in treaties all the time. And Wilson um, uh, would not compromise. He had compromised in the negotiations in Paris. He had had to because there were basically, in most instances, four uh, powers, including the United States, making the decisions. And they had decided that all of their votes had to be unanimous. Otherwise, Germany would uh, exploit the division of opinion. So he would get outvoted on a lot of things. Um, and so he comes home having compromised and he just wants the Senate to fully stand behind him. And he thinks his ace in the hole really is that the Senate has never uh, failed to ratify a peace treaty. So he thinks, okay, they're gonna fuss this way and that way and the other way, but in the end they will vote for the treaty. So he took an enormous gamble. And when and he had a uh big stroke in the middle of this mm-hmm. uh fight. So he gets sidelined and uh it's the ranking democrat on the Foreign Relations Committee who was leading the fight for him and he really, really did try. And at some point, um Britain and France were appalled by the idea that the Senate might not ratify the treaty and they Got word to Washington, uh, some of it in public and some of it through diplomatic channels, we can live with these Republican reservations, you know, just let's get the treaty and have the United States in the treaty. But Wilson, by this time, um, he's very compromised by the stroke. And some people think he was more stubborn than ever after the stroke. But before that, he had been very stubborn as well. He just was not going to give. Um, So I don't... uh, if he had compromised, yes, the treaty would have been ratified and the United States would have joined the League of Nations, um, which would have been a good thing. I don't, uh, I can't, uh, nothing I've read has convinced me that that would have prevented World War II, but it would have been a good thing for the United States to be at the center of the League for all those years. Uh, it, it turned out to be ineffectual because there wasn't any will to, enforce the provisions of the treaty once Hitler and Mussolini mm-hmm. started um, misbehaving.
2: Of course, we weren't. We weren't members either.
1: Right. Yes.
2: I I, uh, I watched a movie from the 1940s, uh, the um, biopic on, on Wilson.
1: Wilson, yes.
2: And it is interesting to watch that narrative, because that narrative is very much that. Here was this prescient man. Here is this man who was so ahead of his time and the fools like Lodge and Bora and how could we have gone down that road and entered what, you know, uh, isolation and and look at, you know, with the hindsight of World War II and and look at what it wrought when we didn't listen to Wilson. And it's just interesting to see that narrative because it's a very different take from the way a lot of people have it now. That was the kind of heroic yeah. Wilson.
1: yes. Yeah. And the tragic, the tragic Wilson, and you know, tragedy for Wilson, tragedy for the world narrative.
2: He was also one of the first presidents, really, to take a message on the road like that. I mean, T. R. made a lot of stumps, but as president, um, trying to think if it was any anything of the of the of that type, and to really take a message on the road. And had he not had the stroke uh, after the Colorado speech, I, I wonder. I do wonder if he would have been able to turn opinion.
1: Well, the, um, he he uh, he was not um, in good shape when he went on that uh, speaking tour. He had had a, a brilliantly successful speaking tour in 1916, where he basically uh, talked a country that didn't want anything. To I, I say in the book, uh, when it came to foreign relations, Americans didn't want any
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: before World War One. They were happy in their splendid isolation. So he saw uh, that the United States would be very vulnerable if it didn't build up its army and its navy. This was a very unpopular idea, except in the northeastern United States, um, where there were a lot of uh, hawks. So he took this message on the road, and he actually changed opinion. So in 1919, when he comes home and the treaty is under siege in the Senate, he does the same thing and hoping for the same results. But he was really exhausted when he went on that tour and he didn't um, when he went on the 1916 tour he asked the people to be in touch with their senators and congressmen about this and they were and this time around he didn't even really ask i mean it's like he didn't think of it and his speeches there are beautiful lines in them but they're really kind of uh, rambling and also the republicans uh, sent out speakers behind him. You know, they'd be like maybe three days behind him and they'd come to town and say, don't pay attention to that. It'd be better if we didn't, if we just stayed with our old pre-war idea. What Wilson is suggesting might be noble, but it's never been tried before. Why should we take that risk? And I was, I was interested to find that people were not writing the Senate and please pass the Treaty of Versailles. There's very little mail coming into the
2: Senate about that. Okay, that's, that's that's very interesting to know. A reminder that I am speaking with Patricia O'Toole, the author of The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made. Let's talk about race. Uh, we have to with Wilson in these modern times.
0: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.
2: there are a number of people that listen to my program i I put up a post once and said it was it was a asked a question about woodrow wilson and someone just the first comment i don't care he's a racist Mm -hmm. the the one fact to hold on to often you hear about is uh the federal government being segregated under woodrow wilson's time in office it's hard to dispute it could be nuanced a bit and and i know in your book you do I mean, to what extent is the segregation of the Civil Service Wilson's, or is it really Burleson and, and the other Southerners in his cabinet? They kind of pushed him into it, or some combination?
1: Well, it's it's really important to understand uh, what happened, not to excuse it. It's really mm. inexcusable. It deserves the condemnation that it has had. But uh, what started with Wilson uh, one of the reasons that the racism was so uh terrible is that it lasted for a really long time. And it affected, for example, New Deal legislation. Uh, You know, when, um, well, the, the context is this. To get anything passed in the House and the Senate, you need Southern votes. And sometimes, like in the case of the economic reforms that Wilson passed, the Southerners were very quick to see that that was a huge expansion of federal authority. And if you're a Southerner, you're relying on states' rights. You don't really like expansion of federal authority. And it's very easy to jump from, well, if they're going to expand their authority in this realm, before you know it, they're going to be banning segregation and you know all the state laws that we have to keep blacks in their place is how they would have thought about it. So um, Wilson had two handlers in Congress. One was his Secretary of the Treasury, a guy named McAdoo, and the other one was the Postmaster General, Burleson. Um, and they, in their negotiations with the House and the Senate, the Southerners wanted something in return uh, for their votes, for supporting these economic reforms. They wanted a concrete sign from Wilson that he was not going to touch anything to do with... Uh, their segregationist laws in the South, the state laws. So what they asked for was segregation of the civil service, and Wilson um, was in a bind. He he thought that these economic reforms that he was passing were going to be really good for the country. They were, and they, and they did end the days of laissez-faire and the plutocrats. I mean, that was over with these with these changes. Um, but he agreed to this bargain. And the way I talk about it, I say here's a moral man agreeing. He gets these moral victories and he thought of this legislation as moral, vic- these legislative acts as moral victories. Um, but he gets them in an immoral bargain because he agrees to segregation.
2: What kind of uh, legislation when you talk about ending the plutocrats? Are we talking about the Federal Reserve Bill? Are we talk about yeah. eight-hour work yeah. day or child labor?
1: Yeah. We're talking about the Fed and the new Antitrust Act, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, the Fed gives many more people access to credit uh, than ever had it before. Um, the uh, new Antitrust Act and the Federal Trade Commission make competition fairer than it's ever been before. So, you know, the big guys can't crush the small guys uh, with the uh, ease that they had been able to in the past. And the modern um, income tax replacing that Tariff revenue with income tax revenue. Most people, you know, half the people didn't pay any income tax, but now their consumer goods uh, that happened to be made abroad were much cheaper uh, than they had been before. So they were saving. It was estimated that the average family saved like a thousand dollars a year with that uh, with that change. So those were those were good kind of like common man mm-hmm. uh, measures. One thing that was very interesting to me, uh, of course, black leaders were very upset by this because a lot of them felt they, you know, they'd always voted the party of Lincoln pretty much. And they felt after doing that for decades, they hadn't gotten anything. So they were willing to take a chance on Wilson. And he he said to one group that he he promised them equal justice. And he said something like, and not mere grudging justice, but kind of wholehearted justice. Um, So here he is, you know, a few months into his presidency segregating the civil service. So they're very upset, as are northern white liberals who had supported Wilson, people who were busy helping found the NAACP, helping work for economic opportunity for all and for racial equality in other ways. Um, They're very upset. So Wilson would, from time to time, have one of these groups or one of these leaders in his office for a discussion of this. And at least twice after these, he was so upset that he had to take to his bed. He was somebody who had, he was, if if there was too much stress, he often got sick and the white house would pull out, put out a bulletin saying the president has a cold and will be staying in the family quarters of the white house. And, um, but it was, you know, it was kind of monumental, uh, digestive upsets that he had. And I think it was, this is a man who who loves to have the moral high ground. And I think that deep down, he knew he didn't have it on this issue, but he couldn't think what to do. He couldn't think how to reconcile the morality and the immorality in, in this.
2: Well, I think it's important to contextualize the politics of the time between the two parties. The Republicans had no... No support in the South, and therefore had a kind of political free shot on gold to do anything they wanted there but uh the Democrat running relied on southern votes the The one thing that is is obvious or you know really makes a statement is that there were very few or none african American appointees in the north when the Republicans were in power mm-hmm. just that they they took the area where they had no real chance of winning and therefore no one to anger and took this kind of brave stand and so Wilson gets in, needs votes, as you say, to pass the legislation. It's an ugly trade. It is a little nuanced too because I think a lot of people say, well Wilson segregated the government and yes, I mean I mean suppose if you talk about the Postal Service, it's the large it's the large organ with a lot of the jobs. But again, some of this is just merely the spoil system. the, the new party is coming in and they're
1: yeah in in terms of appointments, it definitely is the po- the spoil system, but in terms of people who just applied to be clerks in the in the civil service, mm. that had all, or to be to work in the post office, and just you know just happenstance really, the two largest bureaucracies at that time are the post office, so there's Postmaster Burleson making this deal. He's a, he's a southerner, and the treasury Department, and there's McAdoo, who is also a Southerner by birth. Um, making this deal with Southerners in the Senate. So um, nobody is, uh, you know, be interesting to think about what might have happened if those two guys had been Northerners instead of Southerners, or if they had represented the Department of the Interior and, uh, you know, the Department of uh, Labor, which at that point was a small um, department. Uh, it was actually brand new. Um, and um, so they're, you know, they're Southerners and they're in the cabinet and they're uh, in charge of these really large bureaucracies. And the civil, those civil service jobs, both working for the post office and working um, in other parts of the civil service, that was a you know, that for decades had been a way for blacks in Washington to move into the middle class. And all of a sudden there's segregation and the the first segregation, it was, it was, just very mean-spirited. It's like, well, you can't eat in our lunchroom anymore, or you're going to have to go to restrooms that are way down the basement and on the far side of this giant building. Um, But then um, very shortly after that, they start requiring photographs when you apply for a job in the civil service. So all of a sudden African-Americans aren't getting jobs. And um, it, it just goes on from there. And the, the other thing to remember is that this starts with Wilson, but it doesn't end with, with Wilson when Wilson leaves office and Harding, uh, a Republican, becomes president. It goes on like way into the New Deal. Um, so you have both Republicans and uh, Democrats in the White House who are not changing this, this backward step that the, the Wilson administration. Change And one more point about race that doesn 't get discussed enough um, in in my view is it wasn 't just African Americans uh, where wilson 's uh, bigotry comes out. He felt that way about the Japanese um, there are a couple of incidents in the book that have to do with that um, and he felt that way about uh, there are all these military interventions that he makes in the Caribbean and you know, he's, he's never intervening against the government that's run by whites. It's always, uh, brown people, um, who are under attack. And the, the justification, you know, if you, not justification for it, but the kind of explanation is that the Panama Canal is new and the United States really needs to tamp down any instability in the region, it feels, you know, so, Every t- time there's a revolution or a new band of bandits takes over from the old band of bandits, you know, the Marines are landing. And-
2: oh, I mean, I'm uh, Mexico is under rebellion, and I'm, I have no doubt that if it happened in 2018 or, or even – I know that – I mean, Mexico isn't a bad situation now with cartels and things, but there is – if it was just a no government whatsoever now, I'm sure that we'd be intervening in some way. I mean, it's, yeah, instability on the border. No, it's an interesting point that you, you bring up. It's very hard for a modern audience, and I suppose it should be. And I suppose he does deserve criticism and in modernize can never be that great because for us, race is so important that we have to get beyond right. and we have to get and, and it's just unacceptable. It is, of course, uh, important to look at him as a, in, in a larger sense, look at how important he is. The slogan when he got reelected was he kept us out of war. And I've always wondered about taking that literally. I know he didn't like the slogan. But, you know, he did keep us out of World War I for some period when some Americans like Theodore Roosevelt, others may have wanted us to jump in. At a time that might have been very bad. I mean, should he get a little more credit for at least keeping us out a few years? Uh
1: yes, and um there's some thought too that the war he had kept us out of was Mexico. You know, because we had a couple mm. of interventions in Mexico, but there was never really officially a war uh with Mexico. And Wilson, um those interventions did not go well and he learned from them. You know, at when the Russian Revolution came along and there was a lot of pressure from abroad to um, intervene. He he ultimately did in a very tiny way, but um, by then he, his thought was when a country's having a revolution, you should let them figure it out themselves, um, even though they, these, these are his words, even though they wallow in anarchy for a while. So he did learn that uh, it had not been a good idea to intervene in the Mexican Revolution. Um, the other thing is that, uh, you know, we talk about great presidents, and every year there are these polls of great presidents in all these different categories. And mm-hmm. um, I I read them with uh, great uh, interest, but it occurred to me, I, I, looking at last year's CNN poll, uh, Wilson dropped from number six to number 10. And I think that's for two reasons. One is there's been the racism stuff was never like a secret. It seemed it mm-hmm. when it came out, when the students started protesting at Princeton, but it was, you know, it was in the history books and it wasn't part of the popular consciousness. Um, but uh, he's, he's uh, I was thinking that uh, instead of like, yes, let's keep the great president's poll, but uh, let's, let's have a, some sort of measure of consequential presidents rather than great presidents. Cause great presidents, to be a great president, you gotta be a hero, right? So, we're only right. gonna, there's just gonna be a handful of people who ever end up in that category. But if you had a poll of consequential presidents, um, Wilson would always be there in, you know, with Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. And maybe, I don't know who you would add to that list of a later president, but maybe George W. Bush. Because that was a huge change for us, and we're still reaping the whirlwind on on that one.
3: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And to the extent that a liberal turns against Wilsonianism, it's, I think it's coming from that place. It's coming from the Bush administration, second Bush mm-hmm. administration and the kind of neocons, if you will, and the ideas, grand designs for uh, American you know, presence in the Middle East, that uh, it would be wrong to blame to Wilson so far in the past, but his idea that uh, America has this moral place and must act because it can. And we're looking at that, I think, with a yeah. harsh eye and it. I- almost Republicans and Democrats, I think, In it's hard to gauge Trump on anything, but uh, to uh, to an extent, at least when he was running, there was a little bit of criticism of some of that Bush interventionism. Yes, um,
1: well, certainly later presidents. Interesting, SDR is a committed internationalist, you know, but he, uh, when you were talking about the Wilson movie that, w- that came out in 1944, and, you know, that was really a pitch for creating another international organization, which the Roosevelt administration already had underway. I mean, they're busy planning the UN uh, from shortly after the time the United States enters World War II. And some historians think that um, FDR, who had been the assistant secretary of the Navy throughout Wilson's presidency and watched him up close and 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 very carefully throughout, um Some people think that FDR completely threw out what Wilson had done, and I think of it more as what FDR was doing was Wilson 2.0. He was trying to figure out how to save what had been um, admirable about the League of Nations, Um, basically the idea that the world would be better off if there's a global organization of governments who come together to cooperate on things and particularly to try to keep peace in the world. And that was that was a revolutionary idea that Wilson had but because before that there wasn't a global organization of governments. It would just be these alliances of great powers and um, you know, that exploded in World War One when, you know, one member of one alliance goes to war, then the other members of that alliance have to do it. And so you very quickly had uh the whole world at war in a couple of weeks because you, you know, I don't, I can't remember how many nations altogether were involved in the two big alliances, but maybe 16, something like that. Um, and that's, in that, those days, that's a lot of nations. That was a very big idea, and in a way, it's been the touchstone of our foreign policy debates ever since. So, you have a president like Nixon, for example, you know, who's, uh, nobody has better, uh, anti-communist uh credentials than uh Richard Nixon when he comes to office. But his, his mother admired Woodrow Wilson. Uh, the family's Quaker, so the idea of a peaceful world means something um to Nixon. Um but he thought that uh the way he read uh what Wilson had tried to do is like overcommitment of the United States. Um FDR, you know, one mistake that he avoided was uh, Wilson had never built bipartisan support for the League. Uh, he was just determined to ignore the Republicans and barrel the thing through on his own. Um, and so from the beginning, FDR is building support. And FDR and his advisors also concluded that one of the reasons the League had failed is that it, it took on too many things. It was trying to accomplish too many things. So the UN is set up um, to do some things, but then there are these other organizations that are uh, created at about the same time to take care of um, more, uh, to just shift some of the responsibilities away from the UN to other international organizations, some of which were regional like NATO and some of which were global like uh, the IMF and, and the World Bank. So it's a different model but a lot of the language i was interested to see this a lot of the language in the un charter is lifted straight from the league of nations covenant in terms of its aspirations for the world and the great ideal that it's putting out there of all the nations of the world coming together uh to preserve peace
2: yeah i think uh, globalism is under attack but i my opinion of it is uh, i i think it's a little bit of taking for granted all the benefits you 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 on the tariff issue you you talked earlier about the prices coming down, and we're certainly just taking that for granted now, and even thinking about bringing bringing tariffs back in a great, to a greater extent. With globalism, we we tire of the UN and all the countries yelling at America or things like that, but forget of all the good things that that it can do. Yeah,
1: Wilson understood that you. He wasn't actually the first president, president to understand that with modern communication in the world. You know information being able to travel very quickly, um, danger can travel very quickly. Um, so um, he wanted a way you know for the world to be able to come together to to meet uh, aggression um, and uh, you know democracy his his big line from his speech when he asked Congress for a declaration of war is the world must be made safe for democracy." And, you know, we could, uh, look at that a hundred years later and basically say, yeah, we, we have to do that. I mean, if you care about democracy, it seems mm-hmm. a high priority. And yet democracy is under attack, uh, in many countries around the world. We have the rise of these strongman dictators in Hungary and Poland, Turkey, the Philippines, um, and elsewhere, uh, and we also have, um, uh, you know, incursions on uh, civil liberties that we take for granted, you know, lots of uh, attacks on the press. We're beginning to see that here.
2: On that note, it, should he have clamped down more in his own administration, uh, some of the attorney generals who were perhaps yeah. doing that in the United States, yeah. clamping down on dissent? Absolutely. That
1: and... is um, the, the uh, World War I era of repressing dissent is, the worst in our history, uh, 1,500 people went to jail for disagreeing with the U.S. Uh, decision to enter the war. Um, there's never been anything like it, and uh, the laws that were passed that made that possible are actually still on the books. So... Um,
2: was it that he was afraid? It's, I guess it's, it's just, you know, we it's, could. It's, um,
1: hmm. you know, he, uh, as a young man, he didn't like immigrants from countries other than the northern European countries. But he, uh, I think somebody got hold of him fairly, fairly early and said, these people vote, you know, <laughs> you can't just, like, write them off. So he changed his tune on that in a really quite wonderful way. There's a speech he gave to a group of, um, people who were just becoming, they were just taking their citizens, going through their citizenship ceremony. And he said, we need you. We need immigrants because you've now just been taught all of our ideals. They're very fresh in your mind. And you're going to go out in the world and you're going to find that our behavior is somewhat below those ideals. So we need you to remind us of those ideals, which I think is just a terrific civic idea. And he really meant it. So when World War One comes along, what he's afraid of, it's, it's like uh, about a third of the country at that point are either immigrants or children of immigrants. And they have family members, relatives in the old country, fighting on both sides. So he's worried that the divisions of Europe are going to, like, be played out among uh, competing ethnic groups. Austrian immigrants are all of a sudden going to be angry with... Uh, French immigrants and British immigrants and, um, so that his big worry, but it got really way out of hand. And from time to time, when his attorney general or the postmaster general clamped down on, uh, dissent, um, he would write a letter and say, you know, really, I think this is over the top. I think we can, you know, okay, these sentiments are, Not really admirable, but I think we can have room for this kind of dissent. And back would come some reply saying, actually, Mr. President, there's terrible stuff going on out there, and we can't. We have to unify the people. And then he he never pursued it. You know, he was kind of good for one round, and that was it. I mean, once he got a reply back, he that was kind of it. He didn't put up a fight about it.
2: You you had referenced the committee for public information and 150 thousand volunteers to spread the propaganda yeah. and the messages and perhaps to eyes and ears to also report bad things and and all of this but it's it's kind of a pre technology uh, way of uh, doing propaganda. And it just reminds me of when we hear about the kind of the taking information from cell phones at the the NSA and things like that. How similar in a in a kind of eyes and ears fashion.
1: Yes, there was, there was the eyes and ears, uh, thing, um, kind of volunteers, uh, sort of volunteer, uh, FBI agents, if you will. I mean, uh, and, um, there was one organization in particular that gave out badges that looked very like Secret Service badges. Uh, so that's not good. You know, somebody can come in with a badge and it kind of sounds like the Secret Service. Um, and, um, they uh they were skulking around doing all all kinds of things say invading privacy in all kinds of ways but on the the other part of the effort that really interested to me there's sort of a, it's called the committee on public information and it's really like the ministry of propaganda and their tactic their basic tactic was to monopolize the news you know so uh the government mm-hmm. all government announcements virtually all of them came out now through the Committee on Public Information. And they didn't see this as propaganda. They saw it as informing the public. And a lot of it really was kind of straightforward information or else information in a sort of cheerleading variety, you know, like, boy, our troops, they're the most terrific guys because of this, that, and the other thing. So there's that kind of stuff that's sort of benign and there wasn't really like an effort to put out False information that's maybe a little sunny at times, but there was there came to be a really dark side to this about hating the Hun. And there are posters for, uh, you know, they wanted people to buy Liberty Bonds to fund the war, and they have these German soldiers portrayed not as humans but as beasts. They look very ape-like. They're making movies with titles. You know, there's one about the Kaiser, and they call him the Beast of Berlin. There's another one called the Prussian Kerr. And, I mean, that's really animalizing the enemy. And the effort was, the the guy who ran the Committee on Public Information, George Creel, he said he wanted to weld the people into a white-hot mass of war will. So, you know, he uh, yeah. And maybe that's something that might be okay to do with soldiers you're sending into battle, but you don't really want, every citizen feeling that way, because there were, in addition to the the, uh, prosecution of of dissent that the government was doing, there are all these vigilantes that turn up, you know, some guy sitting in a bar maybe says, oh, I don't know about this war, and then you have these overzealous uh, patriots who are dragging him out into the street, beating him up, spitting on him, making him kiss the flag, that was a big thing to make people kiss the flag, and there was a lot of that. That's, that's the dark side. Yeah.
2: History never repeats itself, I guess. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, uh, did you come out of it liking Woodrow Wilson? Uh, you know, you spent a lot of time with him. Uh, did you come out liking Woodrow uh, Wilson? You
1: know, um, my previous book was about Theodore Roosevelt, and every single day it was mm-hmm. great to work on that book. And I often dreamed about him. With Wilson, it took twice as long. <laughs> I never dreamed about him. Not once. And I, I, he's, I came out, um, uh, admiring his hopes and dreams for the world. You know, we, we still have to find a way to, you know, to have peace in the world. And that's a pretty big dream. There aren't many statesmen who have dreams that big. So I can admire that. But mostly I feel sorry for him because he, he, um, he was the greatest speaker of his time and he used oratory very well, but he wasn't good at human relations. You know, he never cultivated um even he never cultivated other politicians. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, if you had been in his office at eleven thirty in the morning and let's say, you know, he's a Republican, let's say you're a Democrat and you came to talk to him about something, some kind of friction between the parties. Um, you'd have your conversation and then he would Look at his watch and say, you know, it's lunchtime. Can you come up and, uh, have lunch with Mrs. Roosevelt and the children and me? Quentin was asking me about your dog just the other day. So you, you know, this would be so cool. You'd go have lunch with the Roosevelts. You'd go back to the hill and you'd think, you know what? I don't always dis, I don't always agree with that guy, but I'm going to support him when I can. Just cause he's such a nice guy and he, he showed that he cared about you. Wilson could not bring himself to do that. Um and uh you know he thinks he can govern by having great ideas and selling the ideas. He doesn't like negotiation, he doesn't like compromise and um he is kind of a partisan president. Not because he really hates Republicans, but because he thinks that you govern through parties. So what the president has to do is really pay attention uh to his party. So he's um he, he wants good big things for the country and the world so you have to admire that but then he just doesn't develop I don't think anybody is born with all the skills it takes to be a good president but no. he doesn't work to he doesn't work to develop the the ones where he has some weakness he just thinks he can do it all on oratory and great ideas and to me that's tragic
2: And we've been speaking with Patricia O'Toole, the author of The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson, and The World He Made, highly recommended. Patricia, thanks for coming on My History Could Beat Up Your Politics. uh,
1: thanks, Bruce. It was a wonderful conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
2: And our thanks to Patricia O'Toole for coming on My History Could Beat Up Your Politics. A reminder about the Premium Podcast, we have a special episode on the Lusitania Sinking on there at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Thanks for listening.